Hello, and welcome back to The China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. It's Tuesday, March 28th, and we have three topics to discuss this week. The first is the hearing last week in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee featuring TikTok CEO Shozi Chu talking about the app and concerns about security and its effects on children. The second topic is China's diplomatic moves around the world to isolate Taiwan in the context of Honduras's recent decision to switch relations to the PRC over the Republic of China. And then the third topic we'll go into is the growing relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin after last week's summit in Moscow and how Western countries and democracies are moving to counter that Eurasian bloc. All right, Miles, how are you doing? I'm good, Wilson. Uh, so first on the docket today, we have the hearing last week that everyone was talking about, which happened on Thursday when TikTok CEO Shozi Chu was in front of the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And Miles, the reviews of his performance were not very good. I'm going to give you just one line from Punchbowl News that said, quote, Chu had a very, very rough time as a witness. He wouldn't acknowledge that the Chinese government persecutes Uyghurs. Chu wouldn't answer if the Chinese government could access the data of TikTok's users. And there are over 150 million TikTok users in the United States, mostly young people. So, Miles, how did the hearing go? I mean, the hearing is hard for anybody to chew. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, painful to watch because uh, uh, this uh, CEO from China is put in a uh, in a uh, unwinnable situation. I mean, you cannot read in open forum like this uh, to defend the way Chinese government runs and controls a business like uh, TikTok, right? Uh, so, if I may, I mean, this is just a, a uh, is just a, the tick of the iceberg, if you will, uh, because it's not just one particular app. It really uh, uh, deals with a, a much larger issue. That is, uh, are any Chinese companies able to say no to the Chinese government? The answer is no. Uh, if you are a Chinese company or register, you have a business in China. The Chinese government uh, will force you. Uh, to comply with uh, their law, uh, so you are bound uh, to grant access to the Chinese Communist Party, and particularly its intelligence operations and security uh, organizations. Um, it says in the law. So uh, this is the problem. That's why Mr. Chu uh, could not really perform very well. And that's the 2017 national security law, right? Even without yes, even without that law, the Chinese government can and 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 has exerted the effective control of all major companies uh, it deems necessary to intervene. So what you're talking about right now is a concern largely about structure, the structure of TikTok, how it is governed and its relationship to the CCP, which was also a major concern shared by the congressmen who are asking uh, the CEO questions. So I want to read a couple of the questions that get to that concern. So Representative Neil Dunn, a Republican from Florida, asked whether ByteDance, which is TikTok's parent, has spied on American citizens. And Chu's response was, I don't think that spying is the right way to describe it, which is not really a not really an encouraging answer. Another one uh, from Congressman Fluger was, "Do you disagree with C- uh, FBI Director Ray and NSA Director Nakasone when they said that quote the CCP could have the ability to manipulate data and send it from the United States?" And TikTok CEO Shozi Chu said, "No, I don't disagree." So 
get into a little bit more about how, how this actually works. What is the relationship between the CCP, ByteDance, and then the subsidiary TikTok? Okay, so uh, the uh, TikTok is, is basically the uh, American version or overseas version of the uh, ByteDance. ByteDance, as you say, is a parent company is based in Beijing. So the CCP actually uh, uh, has instructed uh, TikTok to masquerade as a company based in the United States. But that's actually very false uh, because TikTok has uh, tried its best to assure the American uh, um, government, uh, particularly FTC, saying that all our servers are now outside of China, therefore it's safe. That's a very, very disingenuous because it's not whether you you establish your servers, it's who has access to it. The Chinese government from China can easily access the servers of TikTok uh, that are based out of China. So you still doesn't have solved the problem. By the way, TikTok has been fined by FTC severely. I think about a couple of years ago, it was fined something like a, a close to $6 million for all kinds of violations. Secondly, the Chinese government recently is short of money. So they, has, they have gone after big companies like Alibaba, like like banks for money and for control. Precisely because of the very sensitive nature of uh, uh, companies like uh, Alibaba, like uh, ByteDance, uh, so, they, so they have uh, almost 100% control already. In the case of TikTok, for example, ByteDance was the, the owner and founder was a guy by the name of Zhang Yimin. In December of last year, 2022, all of a sudden, the ownership of ByteDance mysteriously changed, changed hand. Uh, in a very, very dramatic way. That is, uh, the owner and his uh, founder was totally out of it. Very much like the way uh, Jack Ma was forced out of the ownership structure of uh, uh, Alibaba. So there is one tiny company that is registered in the Chinese southern city of Xiamen, and that has only about 1 million Chinese yuan investment in the company of Daibans. But that company, owns about 98% of the whole company. And that company is a primary investor, is a Chinese government-owned entities. The Chinese government entity in that company, actually, in theory, is something uh, that's only about 1% uh, ownership. But that 1% is called a special management stock. Is that the same thing as a golden share? That's right, golden share. In Chinese, it's called a, a special management stock. That stock has complete veto power. In this kind of scheme is very clever and uh, convoluted, but in the end, the, the, the reality is that the Chinese government controls not only how the companies companies like TikTok or ByteDance operate, but also they actually own you. So that's the problem. Um, and I think the Congress asked some tough questions, and uh, I don't think that Mr. Chu uh, really could come up with it. Any answer other than just to uh, to to imply uh, defeat and surrender, because there's no other way to answer the questions. You cannot even you cannot even say you know whether China has uh, uh, has uh, committed the genocide in in Uyghur area in Xinjiang, and not just the old hearing should end just there. They didn't ask him to say is there genocide. They asked is there repression, and he couldn't even say repression in Xinjiang. But I want to talk a little bit about Mr. Chu himself. Because while I was watching it, it was hard for me to really get a picture of how much control he actually has. You just described a, a really complicated ownership structure that eventually ends with the CCP. But Mr. Chu, he is the CEO 
in name at least. A little little over a decade ago, he was an intern at Facebook. He went to Stanford Business School. He's from Singapore. When he was in front of the committee and you were watching him testify, did you think this is the man who's calling the shots or is he is he extremely limited and kind of a figurehead? Figurehead is a very good uh, word to describe uh, uh, his position. I have no doubt that's the case. I mean, any company that is legally bound to comply with the Chinese government's demand should not have any license to operate in the United States. And I can tell you, virtually every company of any significance out of China is in that category. So let's talk a little bit about what that means. What you what you just hinted at is sort of a next step. Where do we go from here? And the morning of the hearing, there was kind of a bombshell announcement from China. They basically said, we will not allow the sale of TikTok, a kind of technology export control. And the spokesperson for the Chinese Ministry of Commerce warned that forcing the sale of TikTok would seriously damage the confidence of investors from all over the world, including China, to invest in the United States. So it looks like a sale is off the table. During the Trump administration, there was an attempt to ban it, but the courts got in the way of that. Now in the Senate, there's the Restrict Act, which is a bill by Mark Warner and John Thune. Where do you see this going from here? I think the Chinese government is bluffing because the argument is bogus as well. If China really cares about the investment environment in the United States, this is precisely the measure that Congress should take. That is to guarantee a very fair, safe investment environment in the United States to prevent companies like TikTok, which is controlled by the Chinese government, from gaining even further influence in the American, uh, uh, on American soil. So that's why if uh, we ban TikTok and WeChat, and I think the investment environment will improve. Yeah, and the United States, it's important to point out, would not be the first country to ban TikTok. India banned TikTok in 2020. Taiwan has a ban on TikTok on public devices. Canada has a similar ban. The European Parliament has a similar ban. So do you see this as kind of a global movement against TikTok? And is that part of kind of a, a wider version of splitting the internet, which has been called a, a splinter net, a portmanteau? Do you think that's where we're going from here? Facing the world is the problem. Uh, of not just one particular company, Huawei, Alibaba, TikTok, ByteDance. It's the whole issue of government-business relationship in China. And unless we address the issue systematically and comprehensively, you might have another TikTok, you might have another Huawei issue. So because uh, China has gained tremendously and has exploited the international free trade system and enrich and empower itself over several decades, and I think it is now high time for the world to think about the mistake we made in the past, to reconsider whether it is fair, whether it is healthy to allow a non-market entity like China to fully benefit from the international free trade system. And that is the major question that we should consider. And the only place that uh, uh, this kind of change can be made um, uh, from beginning, I think, is, uh, is legislatures, uh, like the U.S. Congress. Uh, that's why I think the Congress having hearings like this is very helpful. It's not just uh, educational to the public, but also it clarifies uh, the stake we have in allowing this continuation of this uh, massive uh, exploitation of free trade system by a sovereign state like China. 
Sure. So China China is also pushing not only technologically but also diplomatically to kind of split split the world uh, in at least two blocks. Uh, and we saw another example of that last week, which is our next topic, where the Honduran foreign minister Eduardo Reyna went to Beijing to quote promote efforts for the reestablishment of dip- of diplomatic relations between Honduras and the PRC. So for people who weren't aware of before this, Taiwan, the Republic of China, had diplomatic relations with 14 countries, Honduras among them, a lot of them are in Latin America and Central America, and over the decades Beijing has been slowly chipping away at that diplomatic uh, at that diplomatic recognition to the point now where they likely just got Honduras. So talk about what that means and the wider campaign to isolate Taiwan. I mean, my view is that the number of countries recognize Taiwan is uh, important, but it's not really that uh, uh, the most important thing. The most important thing is Taiwan has gained international trust, has gained international support. Taiwan has the government representations in over 70 countries in the world. If you look at the, the global support index, China has become a near pariah state on issues of war, on issues of trade, on issues of governance, transparency. Taiwan is leading. Taiwan has gained economic miracle in recent decades. I mean, last year, GDP per capita of Taiwan has surpassed that of Japan and South Korea. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's the number one in East Asia. So just look at the value of Taiwanese passport and the Chinese passport, and you do a comparison, you will see uh, which one is more powerful, more has more inspirational power. Uh, Taiwan is rec- uh, has like a visa-free agreement with uh, over 150 some countries. China has uh, no more than like a 20, right? It's even fewer than that. So it's, it's very, very interesting to see how this kind of situation is developing. That's why I think uh, some very important American politicians, uh, most prominently former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, have called on the United States to recognize the reality. The reality is that Taiwan deserves our diplomatic recognition. That doesn't necessarily mean we will not recognize China. We will continue to recognize China, but you cannot ignore 23 million free uh, democracy loving people in Taiwan. 23 million people who, even though it's one small island, it's the United States, as you pointed out, are ninth largest trading partner in terms of goods around the world, which is pretty stunning. Uh, I think, uh, Wilson, I, I hate to correct you because uh, uh, you are always right uh, most of the time. <laughs> Taiwan actually is the number eight in terms number of eight. Uh, trade. Okay. Yeah. China is number three. Now, our number one trade partner is Canada. Number two is Mexico. Number three is China. And uh, number eight is Taiwan. Not only in terms of volume, but also quality. Taiwan uh, commands the some of the most critical components of a global economic machine, right? So, uh, like chips, for example. You're talking uh, about TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor. That's just one side of that. Company. Taiwan yeah. also has the first-rate um, business managerial talent pool. So uh, Taiwan is is an amazing, powerful country, despite its size. Small countries, you know, uh, can make a make a, a big uh, presence in global affairs. Uh, look at the, you know Ireland, look at uh, Israel, <laughs> and uh, Taiwan is uh, another example. It's a shining beacon of freedom, democracy, and economic miracle in uh, in the world. The reason Honduras is switching 
diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to mainland China is purely opportunistic. It's basically almost like a blackmailing, because Honduras asked Taiwan to give two point five billion dollars in aid. Taiwanese government say no, we can't do that. This is like a no.、Uh, this is this is almost like a bribe. So Honduras say if you don't give me, I go to China. So Ch- Honduras asked China for over six billion dollar in aid. China said, okay. So、uh, this is basically reported. It's not confirmed, but this is definitely uh, 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 the deal, particularly on the communication between Honduras and Taipei. Yeah, I think. Thank you for bringing up the money point because、uh, the foreign minister of Honduras actually did acknowledge that in one of his own statements when he said, "Quote: Honduras is up to its neck in financial challenges and debt, including apparently it owes six hundred million dollars to Taiwan."、Um, the CCP obviously said that that is not the case,、uh, but there's there's obviously more to the story as well. Um, so, so to finish up on our last topic for the week, Miles,、uh, which is the fallout from the summit last week, a three-day summit between Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. Everyone was watching Moscow to see what was happening. The two reached an agreement on a pipeline in Siberia.、Uh, they expressed concern about NATO's, NATO's presence in Asia. Uh, including things that you've talked about in this podcast, cooperation with places like Japan and South Korea. Really importantly, though, they also signed two joint documents. One was about economic cooperation, and then the other was a nine-point plan、uh, about deepening Russia and China's partnership. So I haven't been able to find an English translation of the plan yet. But tell us a little bit about what was in it and what it means. Well, Xi Jinping went to Moscow. Disguised as a、uh, peacemaker for Ukraine,、uh, with his twelve-point peace plan for Ukraine, the world has seen that、uh, it is a lack of total credibility and honesty. So,、uh, didn't buy.、It. Even Vladimir Putin、uh, thought、uh, Xi Jinping was so naive that this would be really accepted by by Ukraine.、Um, Xi Jinping probably sort of lost face in that regard because if you look at the um, the uh, two concluding documents you mentioned earlier. Ukraine features very little, if anything at all. So the whole trip is far less about Ukraine than about solidifying Russia-China、uh, unity against the West. So、uh, China is has been most gung ho about、uh, challenging the United States、uh, front、uh, front and center.、Uh, Moscow has been going back and forth, back and forth、uh, until the Ukraine war. And so Russia is absolutely、uh, anti-U.S. and anti-NATO. So and Xi Jinping saw the opportunity. They went over there and said, "Listen, you know, let's let's have a united front." But we should always remember that China and Russia、uh, have signed a whole bunch of agreements in the past, economic, political, or otherwise,、uh, for the last in the last twenty-some、uh, years. None of it has really、uh, amounted to anything. For example, about nine years ago, China and Russia signed a four hundred billion dollar gas deal. Right, that's the largest ever known to mankind. To that point, it really didn't go very well because China has、uh, reneged its、uh, um, obligation and promises to pay some of the down payment to build this、uh, gas pipeline in、um, uh, Russia and Siberia. And、uh, China obviously has uh, uh, formed uh, some kind of regional alliance, most prominently Shanghai Cooperation、uh, Organization, that includes Russia. But Russia has feel has felt very uncomfortable because China has suddenly become the dominant figure in that organization, and and Russia has suddenly become a junior partner. So
Yes, they have a united front against the West, uh, against the United States in particular, but they also have a clash of ambitions. And, and I think, you know, we'll see how um, these agreements will pan out. Uh, my doubt, my sense is that uh, probably um, it has a 50-50 chance of uh, 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 coming to its fruition. How important do you think the personal relationship between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin is to this partnership going forward? I think Xi Jinping is a very uh, 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 eager person to have Russia as his strategic partner. Putin has been playing uh, hard to get and very coy. Uh, Putin wants to play balanced uh, uh, diplomacy in Asia. Uh, if he knows that if he gets too close and exclusive with uh, um, Xi Jinping, and he will definitely alienate some of his traditional friends like Vietnam and India, where Russia has a huge market in terms of uh, arms sales and energy exports. And also Russia would like to have some kind of a better relationship with Japan, despite its uh, uh, consistent uh, missteps, uh, because uh, Prime Minister Abe and uh, Vladimir Putin came really close to solving some of the Northern Territory issues. Uh, had there not been the annexation of Crimea in 2014, that problem probably would have been solved, and you will see a much better Japan-Russia relationship. Uh, keep in mind, Vladimir Putin fancy himself as a, a Japan expert. He's a uh, he's a judo expert. He really <laughs> admired Japanese culture. Yes, he, so, he cried at the funeral of his of his judo instructor a couple that's of years right. ago. So there is there is a kind of personal uh, affinity uh, uh, for the Japanese as well. That's actually really interesting, and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because. Last week, also, we've talked about all these visits. Japanese Prime Minister Kishida visited Kyiv as well. So is this is this war in Ukraine jeopardizing that relationship with Japan, too? Japan has rearmed or is rearming right now. He, the prime minister, as I just said, went to Kyiv. So it seems like what you just talked about isn't going to happen. That relationship isn't coming back. Uh, I, I should uh, make it clear that I don't think after 2014 there was any meaningful, significant improvement between Russia and Japan. Because Japan, after uh, the uh, Crimea annexation, joined the West resolutely sanctioning Russia for its aggression um, and illegal annexation of Crimea. So that's not the issue. The issue is that there are opportunities there to improve Russia-Japan uh, relationship had Russia not been acting so uh, aggressively and irresponsibly. So you mentioned about the Prime Minister Kishida's visit to, to Kyiv. It's actually very important because, because of China threat, and because of a Russia threat, Japan has decided to play an international role in promoting global security. Japan doesn't want to be just a regional power. Japan wants to be a global leader in global peace. And Prime Minister Kishida has announced a very ambitious and comprehensive defense rebuild plan. And Japan is going to spend uh, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of $330 billion by 2027. Japan um, has already fundamentally changed its defense posturing from purely defensive to developing a significant counter-strike uh, preemptive uh, offensive capabilities. That's actually is pretty amazing. Japan has significantly closed the gap between uh, itself and NATO. NATO has uh, uh, extended the open arms for Japanese initiative. So 
Well, Japan holds the presidency of the G7 this year. It's going to have a a very big meeting in Hiroshima, I believe, in later spring. And so, Prime Minister Kishida went to Kiev as the president of this year's G7. So it's a expression of international will and international support. So that's why、uh, it also casts a sharp contrast. To the hobnobbing in Moscow between Xi Jinping and Putin, so the world, you are right. Here, the the line has been drawn in the sand. Sure, and I want to I want to finish on that line drawn in the sand really quickly because there was a statement out of the Foreign Ministry of China this past week that reminded the world that、uh, Xi Jinping has talked a lot about what he calls a community of common destiny for mankind, and that remark comes from a speech that he gave. Ten years ago in Moscow, so right after the visit, the foreign ministry reminded that that was the global ambition that he laid out then. So I want to close off on if there is this this coordination between the North Atlantic on the, and the Indo Pacific through mechanisms like NATO and the G7. What kind of Eurasian cooperation are you going to be looking towards between Russia and China going forward? If it is as precarious as we've seen over the last few months. I mean the coming together of Russia and China、uh, in terms of economic and also security and global uh, 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 strategic outlook、uh, has actually uh, uh, meant a lot to the global defense. That is、uh, the NATO model of collective defense and uh, the uh, the Asia Pacific Alliance model、uh, of bilateral、uh, mutual defense、uh, system. They're coming together, and I envision in the near future there will be some kind of convergence organizationally、uh, between these two、uh, alliance systems, NATO and、uh, American alliance system in Asia. So、uh, I've been saying this should be something uh, called uh, uh, North Atlantic、uh, Indo-Pacific、uh, Trade Organization (NIPTO).、Uh, people say I'm the,、uh, that's just a too grandiose.、Uh, it, it's a dream. Hey, listen, I've been accused of being a dreamer many times, and.、Uh, Sometimes the dream may come true, and you're not the only one, Miles. On that note, thank you so much、uh, for another great episode. It's always good to talk to you, and I'll see you again next week. Thank you, Wilson. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the China Insider, a podcast from the China Center at Hudson Institute. We appreciate Hudson for making this podcast possible. Follow Miles and all of the additional great work we do at Hudson.org. Please remember to rate and review this podcast, and we'll see you next time on the China Insider.